CBD FX's CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBD FX uses only organically grown hemp and all natural ingredients. CBD FX's best-selling line of CBD products features wellness-boosting CBD and legal Delta 9 THC gummies, oil tinctures, capsules, pens, and other products. Visit CBDFX.com today and use code GENIUS to get 25% off site-wide, plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase. The code is GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at cbdfx.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Sherry L. Johnson. She's a distinguished professor of psychology. She's the director of the CALM program, C-A-L-M. This is at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, We're going to talk about what's called emotion-related impulsivity and bipolar disorder and the work that she's doing there. So, Sherry, welcome and thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, so you want to tell me a bit about your background and then how you came into this area of research. Yeah, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I've worked in psychiatry and psychology departments, and for decades, I've been working with bipolar disorder. For people who aren't familiar with that, it it's diagnosed just on the basis of mania. Mania is kind of the opposite of depression, so people have too much energy, too many ideas. They can be very happy or even kind of angry in this kind of very go-go-go state. And in my work with people with bipolar disorder, we started to think about what things are like for them with their emotions, even when they're not in episodes, because the episodes of mania come and go, they come and go from periods of depression. We got really interested in the idea that for some of them, they were struggling with what they would say or do when they were in kind of even just a more minor mood state, like when they're happy or upset or stressed, they would say or do things they regretted. And we call that emotion-related impulsivity. Over time, we've begun to study it for people with bipolar disorder and for people who don't have bipolar disorder. And I think there have been two big surprises. The first is that it turns out to be just a very, very powerful predictor of many different outcomes, and I'm happy to talk about that. The other big surprise is just how easily it can be addressed. So we've been working on the treatment angle, and I'm happy to talk about that as well. Well, you just spoke about the mania part. Uh, what are the two poles? There's mania, and what is the other pole called in bipolar disorder? Yeah, it's depression. And interestingly enough, not everybody who has bipolar disorder has the depression. The only thing that's required for the diagnosis is the mania side. But the depression is in there because a lot of people who have bipolar disorder do go through periods of depression. They also often go through periods of being really, really anxious. So hence, two poles. 
some would say. Well, there's three poles, it sounds like, not just two. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I, uh, what, are the, what are the different kinds of bipolar and how are they characterized? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So the one that probably gets the most attention is something called bipolar one disorder, where people have kind of full-blown episodes of mania. Those manias can last for a week or they're so serious that sometimes people have to go into the hospital. And the people around the person with bipolar disorder are usually concerned about the things they're seeing happen. So the person might be taking more risks or not feeling like they need to sleep. And so bipolar one gets a lot of attention, but there are also other forms. So I, I love your question. Bipolar two is defined on the basis of something we call hypomania, which just means kind of little mania. Same kinds of symptoms where the person has their go, 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 they're, they may feel very hyper, they're taking out new goals, they're talking fast, they may be more impulsive, but it's not as big. It doesn't necessarily cause a lot of problems. It's just that the person seems pretty different than their normal baseline selves. And one of the reasons we diagnose those hypomanias is that they often go along with the depressions. So that's bipolar two is you have hypomania and often depression. And then there's something called cyclothymic disorder, which is also considered a form of bipolar disorder. And there, instead of going through these kind of acute kind of shifts that last for days, the person just has kind of a weekly mood. Sometimes they're up and sometimes they're down, but they're in either a high or a low mood more than half the time for years at a time. And because it goes on for so long and has such a level of unpredictability, it can be really tough for people to cope with. Yeah, I know, you know personally, people that uh, have been, that told me they've been diagnosed with bipolar. What I've noticed is the, uh, you know, the mania doesn't seem too bad, but the depressive episodes very difficult. I've seen people become very suspicious of everyone around them. You know, obviously depressed, very angry. I don't know if you've seen this in, in people, but you know, if we can go a little bit deeper on the uh, the depressive part and what you've observed and why, I've also seen that people seem to literally not remember some of the things they say when they're in that mode. So I wonder if we could explore that more, if you could tell me what you've seen clinically. So we have a line of work that is focused on the depression within bipolar disorder. And I think it's a really important part of what people go through. On any given day, a person with bipolar disorder is more likely to be experiencing some depressive symptoms and struggles than they are the manic side. Manias come about once a year. The depression is often there even at a low grade level for months out of the year. And Depression is horrible. I mean, it's not just the kind of emotion pain. It's also that people will feel less motivated to do the things they normally do. They can retreat from people they love and the things they love. They can lose a sense of faith and confidence in themselves. That's really difficult to overcome. And they can have a pretty unbearable lack of energy. And so depression is a very, very hard problem. The good news is that there's a fair amount we now know about how to predict depression within bipolar disorder. And many of the psychotherapies that are top therapies that work well for depression for people who don't have mania can also be hugely helpful for the bipolar depression. Right. But in, in depression, I would think someone that doesn't know would, would see depression as someone being sad, maybe crying, like you say, withdrawing, et cetera, unmotivated, no energy. 
but is there a different type of depression? One that is not characterized that way, but manifests again as anger, as intensity, as suspicion, as as that kind of stuff. It seems like a very different creature than what you're describing. Yeah. So there's a fair amount of controversy about whether the symptoms of depression for the person with bipolar disorder look different than symptoms of depression in the general population. My take on it is it's pretty darn similar, but it's often more severe and it comes on more rapidly. And I think for any of us, when you're really struggling, one way that can come out is to feel irritated and angry towards people and towards events and towards the barriers you're running into. So so irritability and anger is a common part of depression. The sense of paranoia, the sense that people are abjectly, absolutely trying to get you is not it's not the most typical sign of depression, but it happens. And it's it's certainly hard for the person who has it and hard for the people around them. And and I take it as a signal that this is a much more serious depression that, you know, deserves more professional support. CBDFX full spectrum and broad spectrum CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBDFX is offering our listeners an exclusive 25% off, which I think is very generous, plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase when you use the code GENIUS. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at CBDFX.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. But what does that mean? So if it's if it's more serious, is it still bipolar or is this now multiple syndromes, bipolar plus paranoia or bipolar plus uh, OCD, or do these things tend to cluster around people that are bipolar? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Many, many people with bipolar disorder have more, they go through other kinds of syndromes. So if it was just paranoia during the depression, I would just say, okay, it's bipolar disorder. It's a bipolar disorder that comes along with depression. And then that depression is getting pretty bad. But if, if the person had paranoia, even after the other kind of mood problems had cleared up for weeks at a time, then I would start to think, okay, maybe there's a separate syndrome here. Maybe there's two things that need to be treated. But you raised this great question, which is, well, wait a minute, because a person with bipolar disorder also have other illnesses, and they absolutely can, and they frequently do. So perhaps the most common other mental health concern for people with bipolar disorder is an anxiety disorder. OCD is common. It's often that people will try using alcohol and drugs and get into trouble with that because they're trying hard to self-medicate the mood swings they're going through. So yeah, life is complicated. And sometimes the person with bipolar disorder ends up having yet another syndrome on top of that bipolar disorder that has to be addressed. It's a great question. Well, what does, uh, again, are there common clusters like bipolar with uh, X and Y, bipolar with A and B, or is it just a a mixed bag of, of things that can accompany bipolar? I would say the most common thing that gets added onto bipolar disorder is an anxiety disorder by far. And I think one way to think about that is that the heart and soul of bipolar disorder is probably some biologically driven problems with regulating emotions. 
and anxiety is one of those emotions. And so if you're a person who's having a hard time, the way I think about it is bringing online your prefrontal cortex to help down-regulate these intense mood states, then mania, depression, anxiety are all going to be a little harder to bring back into range when you have those experiences. So has anyone characterized what happens first? You know, does someone, let's say, have anxiety and then that leads to depression or depression first and then anxiety comes afterwards or close to it? Like, has anyone looked at the order in which these things happen? Yeah, they have. And it's interesting because often one of the first things you'll see, actually often before there's even a kind of full-blown episode, people will say, you know, I've always been the kind of person who feels things more intensely than other people do. But anxiety often comes on first, depression often comes on for, you know, early on. And it's sometimes not until a couple of years later that people will go through having a manic episode. Now, I want to be careful not to scare people because most people who are experiencing depression and anxiety as adolescents will never go on to have a manic episode. And most people who have manic episodes already have some of this going on in their family. So maybe they don't, you know, maybe it's not their parent, but some other close relative has usually been through a period of mania. It's a very, very strongly genetic disorder. It's very hair. Well, um, you know, what you're mentioning seems like a long-term type thing, you know, someone may be dealing with anxiety for a while or a year or two, and then it leads to either mania or depression in the short term, like within the time span of minutes, hours, or maybe even a day. Are there certain symptoms that will warn you, like, you know, goats starting to run when they know an earthquake is coming? You know, in the minds of people that have these issues, do you see, let's say, Anxiety comes, and then a few hours later, pretty reliably, depression will then hit, and they'll fall into that, you know, the one pendulum swing of the bipolar. Are there any, again, short-term things that tend to accompany an episode, either of mania or of depression? It's a great question. We actually did a study where we followed about 75 people across years to repeatedly assess different kinds of symptoms and see how they correlated and to see if one was a leading indicator, like is depression a leading indicator that mania is going to come on if you have bipolar disorder or is mania a leading indicator that depression is going to come on? And the answer is no. It seemed more like what was happening is depression was wiggling around, mania was wiggling around, and that one was not coming on first. Now, that doesn't mean people can't get early warning signals. And what we often work with people on is the idea of really knowing the full set of ways that, or the full set of manic symptoms and what those might look like so that people can be thoughtful about recognizing those early. Because the earlier people can recognize them, then it's likely they're going to have a better treatment response if they kind of get their medications adjusted, say, in that first couple days of an episode. But they can also kind of rein that episode in before it gets as serious and might have might create as many troubles for them. What about, uh, again, I don't know if you've seen this, but please, two things. One, I've heard what's called the voice. People that have, not everyone, you know, but... It seems like a certain number of people that have depression, bipolar, whatever it is, they're hearing a voice in their head saying, you know, negative things, either about themselves or about other people. Have you heard of this phenomena and how often does it accompany, you know, bipolar or uh, other mental problems? Yeah, it's a great question. So 
I think the voice can take a couple different forms. I think it's pretty common for most of us that, you know, I don't know, I was baking bread this morning, I burned my bread and I go, ah, Sherry, how could you do that? Right? That's one form of a voice. But there's another form of a voice that's much scarier where the person actually thinks that voice isn't inside my head, that I hear a voice of another person and other people can't hear that voice or they can't see what I'm seeing, but it feels terrifyingly real. So that would be a hallucination when it feels like it's outside of you, it's another person, it's a, it's a voice that's not from inside your mind. And during episodes, during kind of full-blown people being in the middle of a mania or depression, I would say that about 10% of people will have something like a hallucination. Well, um, you know, I understand, right, hearing voices, but it seems like there's a spectrum, a continuum. Like, like you said, you made the bread, you said, oh, Sherry, why'd you do that? But some <laughs> yes. people, and, what I, and I'm not blaming you at all, by the way. <laughs> so, some people, though, the voice is a lot nastier. And more sinister, you know, you're terrible, kill yourself now, uh, whatever, that kind of thing. And I know this because I've spoken to people that have literally said what the voice told them. Um, or you can't trust that person. They're going to blah, 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 whatever it is. They're not hearing it necessarily outside of themselves, but their internal voice is, you know, what is a magnitude more negative than let's say yours was with the burning threat. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so I think of that as part and parcel of what happens with depression for the most part. So, you know, depression comes along with incredibly terrible ways of thinking about yourself, the world, just a very pessimistic, critical stance for a lot of people. And the more that that's there, the harder it is for them with their depression. And there are some techniques around for really focusing on that. So one thing people will think about as clinicians is to try and help people look at that, label it, and think to themselves, it's just a thought. I may or may not buy into it, but that's what it is. It's a thought. Like to try and detach and take a very mindful perspective to watching those thought bubbles and that kind of inner dialogue float across the screen of the brain. And that kind of training in kind of mindful watching without reacting to that terrible train of thought looks like it's very, very helpful for people in managing their depression. Okay. Well, what do you think are the most difficult aspects of this too for someone to work on and which ones seem to be easier? Like what, you know, if someone's going to go through talk therapy, you know, with or without medication, again, what are the easier, more approachable ones that people have a lot of success in mitigating and which are like the toughest ones that it's really, really, really hard for them to deal with? I think it's really hard initially to kind of buy into the idea of having bipolar disorder. I teach a lot of undergraduates and I always ask them to imagine that one day they wake up and they go through an episode where they do things they would have never done in their regular life. And some of them may be embarrassing, some of them may be very different judgment. Maybe they they wake up and they're they're more reckless, they're more sexual, they're more impulsive, and they do and say things that they would have never done in their regular life. 
And then somebody says, okay, that was a manic episode and it could happen to you again. I think that's terrifying. And I think for most people, it's going to take a fair amount to kind of wrap your head around that and move from kind of wanting to just not believe it to taking that kind of growth perspective that says, all right, I'm going to get medication. I'm going to learn every skill I can for picking up on the episodes, for avoiding the triggers. And... For the idea that if this happens again, I'm going to put in a lot of protection. So say I don't spend too much money or I don't, you know, kind of go out and engage with the world in as reckless of a way. And I'm going to have a friend that I'm going to call and a therapist that I'm going to call and I'm going to kind of put in guardrails. I think making that shift from kind of day one of trying to understand bipolar disorder is incredibly hard. I think the other thing that's really hard is that we live in a culture where we really, we really, really want medications to do it all. And medications, without a doubt, are the first line of defense. They cut episode timing in half. They cut the severity in half. That's pretty powerful. There's there's very clear evidence that people who take medications for their bipolar disorder are more likely to quite frankly, live longer and have less, you know, self-harm, but they're not 100%. So I think there's something kind of disillusioning about that. And I think people adapting to that is, is really hard. On the other hand, I think I'm, I'm very, very optimistic for people with bipolar disorder. I've watched many people sort of find the right medication for them and learn a lot of these skills about knowing the triggers, knowing the early signs, having guardrails up, who have gone on to have not just good lives, but but really inspiring lives and to live very fully between the episodes and and also often to have a level of energy and kind of charisma that's maybe super fueled compared to the general population. So I think there are very, very hard parts about this. And then I think there's reasons to be extremely optimistic. Uh, How often do people have these problems and they think that they don't have the problems? It's you. It's not me. It's not my depression. It's you. You're you're so uh, mean to me. That's why I get like this. I I, Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's kind of the first response that most people have, actually. I think, you know, imagine that I come to you and I say, hey, I think you have a mental illness and it might be chronic and it might be recurrent. And when you're in the middle of episode, you may not realize that your thinking is distorted. I think it's pretty healthy for a person to fight back and go, no, I don't think so. Um, And so I think the initial inclination for most people is to think, no, 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 or maybe it was just that I wasn't sleeping right, or maybe it's because I had tried that drug, or maybe there's something in my diet, because all of those other explanations are more optimistic. I think it's a very, very hard thing for people to grapple with the idea that they might actually have it. And I think the best way we help people get that insight is to to combine what we're seeing in terms of things like people's energy and sleep and changes in behavior with some message of hope and some message of, look, there's ways we can help you manage this. Well, what if someone's okay and you know, you're kind of going through this with them and you tell them like, I'm going to tell you a a certain word when I see you in this way. You know, when I see you really depressed, upset, I'm going to say the word tarantula or something. And that'll let you know that I'm, I'm seeing you in this mode. Do you think that would be playing psychologist and a bad idea? Do you think that would be helpful? Like, is there anything you could say to someone where they're in a good way 
that will will help you get access to them when they're in a bad way so they won't be like you know i love that i love that so david mcluitz has a self-help book for families of people with bipolar disorder where he he teaches a skill set he calls the fire drill and i think that's really what you're talking about is okay you're in remission you know people with bipolar disorder can go through very long periods of remission but what happens when the people who love them start to see the symptoms coming on because other people may notice the symptoms before they do so how do we help in that moment and a couple of things that that david mcluitz recommends and one is the person with bipolar disorder should be helping us define the words, right? Like maybe the word isn't tarantula. Maybe the word is, you know, you seem a little edgy or, or I noticed you weren't sleeping or how do we just take a breath together? Like what's the wording that's going to feel best for them? And then there's also some questions about threshold, right? So when should the fire drill kick in? One of my favorite people with bipolar disorder said to me once, look, Sherry, you don't have to go to a dinner party, start laughing hard and worry, is this mania? Am I a little too high, right? So how many symptoms and signals have to be there before the fire drill starts to happen? And I would argue nobody should be chastised for just having a good time at a dinner party. So the key is, okay, what if you're really energized at the dinner party and then you can't sleep that night and then the next day you're starting to spend more money like you know does it begin to accumulate before we have to move into kind of fire drill mode well what is fire drill mode what happens well i think that's to be jointly kind of figured out but the idea for for most people with bipolar disorder is that you want to have somebody that you trust to understand bipolar disorder and that has something they can say to you if they notice these symptoms starting to emerge, but that you're working really together with that person to describe what would I like you to say and what would I like you to do? You know, so for some people, it's going to be a very gentle, all right, let's sit down and look at how many nights has it been since she slept well and does your doctor know about it? For for one woman I know, she her bipolar episodes would come on really rapidly, and she didn't want just a very gentle conversation with a friend. She had a, a best friend who would essentially move into her apartment and kind of keep guardrails up so that she wasn't going to make mistakes if she went into a kind of big episode before the medication started kicking in. So I think it's a very collaborative process of designing, like, what's the safety net that the person with bipolar disorder wants from their close others? How do they want that described? And kind of working on it together. And it has to be collaborative. So, you know, family members also are going to want a voice in kind of when do we get to jump in? When do we get to label this? When do we get to kind of share that we're worried? Because, you know, family members worry. And that's that's one way that love comes through. And that's tricky to manage. Um, what about the uh, the memory components? Have people studied this and do people that have these episodes, do they remember them, what they did and what they said, or do they forget? You know, that's fascinating. I I have often had the experience of working with people who don't seem to have a very good memory of what happened during an episode. And, you know, when I first thought, I thought, oh, gosh, you know, they're just uncomfortable talking about that episode. And who wouldn't be, you know, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push, but I've seen it 
in people who actually are pretty comfortable talking about symptoms. And I think something does interfere with memory consolidation when the episodes are really big. I don't think we have a great science to understand that. Outside of bipolar disorder, there are a lot of people working at the kind of science of what happens with things like high levels of cortisol and norepi and other neurochemicals and neurotransmitters to memory. But I, I've never seen that really carefully applied to the bipolar episodes. And part of that is it's really hard to study people in complex biological protocols when they're really in the middle of episodes. It's hard to get the data. Yeah, I was going to ask you, the biomarkers as um as a cohort been able to be put together where, you know, they agree to get their blood drawn when they're manic, when they're normal, when they're depressed, uh, to see what, what biomarkers may or may not pop up. Yeah, no, there's really, there, there are some very interesting neuroimaging studies. One of the models that's out there, and, and it's not perfect, scientists are still working on improving models and there's some exciting, exciting new science happening on that front. But one of the models is that Bipolar disorder may be related to changes in the way dopamine receptors of the brain are working and that there may be fluctuations in the function of the dopamine system. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is really involved in motivation to pursue rewards and good things. And um, when dopamine is really high, it tends to amp up energy and many, many other things that do tend to be act up when people have media and current manic symptoms. So that's that's one model is that this is related to fluctuations in how dopamine is is functioning. No, oh, but no one's yet identified specific biomarkers, you know, spikes in this, that, or the other, temporary depressions in this, that, or the other that accompany mania or depression. I don't think we're at a point where we could sort of reverse engineer, where we could take a blood test or a brain scan and say, golly, look at that. That person has mania right now. It's not It's not that precise that we can use it for identification. Um, there's a lot of work going on with using something called the actigraphy, where we put a wristband on you and we measure every movement you make. And you can use that to look at just how active somebody is, but also what are the kind of day-night rhythms of activity. And those profiles have a little bit of ability to kind of predict changes in mania. But again, it's not lockstep. What we see though is as people move towards mania, they tend to be more awake at night and less awake. I mean, less active in the middle of their day. Um, so sort of more sluggish relatively in the middle of the day and then, and then more awake at night. And that when we see that profile emerging, that can help us understand who might be moving towards a manic episode among, among people who have bipolar disorder. Mm. Okay. Where do you think the, the research and the treatability is headed? Are there new and up-and-coming exciting things, or is this a, a, a really long slog that, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Or, uh, you know, again, because you're in the, the clinical space, are you aware of, you know, again, very new promising treatments for this? Yeah, I'm aware of a couple kind of global initiatives that I'm really excited about, and I'm, I'm also, I'm happy to share with you something new we're starting that I'm also excited about. I think at a global level, there's a brand new foundation for bipolar disorder that is actually 
a group of entrepreneurs who've been very successful, but also who ha tend to have this in their family, have come together to form an initiative called BD2, which is funding groundbreaking work on bipolar disorder. So they just released their first wave of grants. And I think that's going to really help with the momentum for the field because they're, they're interested in kind of funding things that are more innovative and have the potential to kind of really make a difference. So I see BD2 as a very, very exciting shift in the field. I've also been really excited to see there's a group out of Australia that's bring, bringing together people invested in early intervention. So what do we do for somebody who's adolescent with bipolar disorder? They They've been bringing together people worldwide who are passionate about that question and getting them to collaborate and thinking about how are we going to tackle this. So I also think that that is a huge game-changing kind of approach here. I haven't seen either of those things during my time in the field. So both, I think, are so, so promising. And then at a personal level, we just got funding. We got a five-year grant from a group in England called the Welcome Trust to test a very different approach. We're testing something that'll be an add-on to medication, but it's, it's based on there's a growing understanding that whatever's happening with bipolar disorder, there's something probably built into the genetic vulnerability that's very related to other health indices. So people with bipolar disorder from, from early ages and, and even their family members who don't tend to have bipolar disorder show a lot of problems with things like sleep and day-night rhythms and diabetes and heart health. Uh, what we would think of as being the fancy words for those are metabolic and circadian problems. So maybe that's part of the vulnerability. It's not there for everybody, but the warning is that when those things are there, they can predict worse bipolar disorder over time, that the people who have that seem to struggle with their symptoms more over time. And so while the medications are very helpful in trying to target directly the mania and depression, there may be these other things going on that we also need to grapple with. And so we're just starting a new study where we're going to be looking at what happens if we help people with dietary interventions that help what we would call those metabolic and circadian problems. Can we help address those on top of the medication, and in doing that, will we be able to see some benefits for health and stability and wellness for people with bipolar disorder? Yeah, what about uh, microbiome? Uh, has anyone tried to correlate that with uh, the severity of, uh, of an episode, let's say? Yeah, no, there's a lot of research going on in microbiomes. My understanding is they're pretty darn complex because they're just, you know, thousands of things to consider about the microbiome. So I think we're at the early days. Um, and I think that field is developing more rapidly around things like depression and anxiety, where you can get larger samples than sometimes it is in bipolar disorder because bipolar disorder is more rare than anxiety or depression are in the general population. But I, I think that, that that whole set of questions is going to be very hot over the next 10 years. So, mm. Okay. Well, uh, what are some resources for listeners that, you know, they themselves may have a problem. They may have family members, other people they care about that have a problem. You know, what can they do? You mentioned David Miklowitz's book. Uh, I don't know the title, but you can mention that maybe a few other resources. Sure. So we developed a, a book that we call um, Bipolar Disorder for the Newly Diagnosed. And it's 
you know, it's short, but it's meant to help people think about well, what are the signs and symptoms that an episode might be coming on? What are the triggers I should be aware of? What are some of the ways I can protect my life if I worry I am going into an episode? So bipolar disorder for the newly diagnosed might be a one resource for people. I also, you know, when you're talking about that inner critical dialogue, and, and the voice inside the head saying, you're no good and you're horrible. There are tools, they're often called cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy that help people kind of look at that and question it and maybe take a little bit more detached stance to whether it's really true. And one person that writes self-help books around that front that I really like is a person named Stephen Jones. Stephen Jones has self-help books for bipolar disorder. More generally, Robert Leahy has really nice books, not necessarily for bipolar disorder per se, but really just in helping people have tools in their, you know, kind of toolkit for addressing things like worry and anxiety and depression. He does a really beautiful job of bringing the best of what we know scientifically to self-help books written for, for lay people. So I think any of those, those are, you know, all things I, I highly recommend and have often mailed to friends and family members that I think are struggling. So. Okay. Well, it's great. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for spending this time. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I hope listeners will, will gain a lot by, uh, by you being here. So thank you. Thank you so much. Great questions. And I hope it'll be helpful for people too. Remember, before you go, check out CBDFX.com for the best in organic, all-natural CBD products, both for you and your pets. Boost your wellness today and get 25% off your first order. Plus, get a free CBD bath bomb when you use code GENIUS at checkout. That's code G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at CBDFX.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.